C-O-O Round Table, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome everyone to episode 14 of the COO Roundtable. I have some very bad news uh, today. For this episode, you are stuck with me. <laughs> uh, I apologize up front. I'm sure this is horrible news to our listeners. Uh, while I promise this topic today is very COO heavy, it is clearly missing the roundtable component, so I apologize for that. But it's, uh, it's late January when we're recording this. The calendar has officially turned to 2020. And DeVoe just released their M&A report, Echelon just released their report, and Fidelity also put out a year-end uh, M&A report as well, and the numbers are just staggering. All three of them are reporting record highs for M&A deal volume in 2019. Echelon reported 203 deals for the year, which by their records would be a 12% increase over 2018. DeVoe counts 132 acquisitions in 2019, so by their count, that's a 31% increase over the prior year. Both firms admit that many transactions aren't reported at all, so they believe their numbers are actually low compared to the numbers of deals that actually occurred uh, throughout the year. DeVoe notes that already in the first few weeks of January, we've had 12 transactions announced compared to only six in the first few weeks of 2019. And they also point out that over the past five quarters, deal volume has topped 30 transactions per quarter. So they are anticipating that that trend to continue into 2020, we could even get to over 40 transactions per quarter going forward. Echelon, they're reporting higher numbers, as I mentioned. They reported 203 deals in 2019. They think in 2020, we could top 210 total transactions. So that would be over 50 deals per quarter. And I'm, I'm not a deal guy. I'm, a, I'm an ops guy. So to me, my head starts to spin and I think, geez, this is absolutely nuts. There's just no way this pace is going to continue. The, the only headlines we read in the industry press anymore, whether you're looking at wealthmanagement.com, financial planning, investment news, whatever, whatever publication it is, the only headlines you see anymore is so-and-so buys so-and-so, so-and-so joins so-and-so. It's just, it's just nonstop. But DeVoe mentions in their report that the RIA industry has over 5,000 firms north of 100 million in AUM. And given the age of our industry, or I should say the age of the advisors that make up our industry, just on succession planning needs alone, DeVoe thinks that we could hit 300 transactions a year. Remember, by their numbers, we broke records last year with only 132. So at 300, they think that just based on succession planning, not even accounting for all of the other reasons advisors merge practices, we could more than double from the numbers we are at today. As I said, I'm not a deal guy and I am clearly not an, an investment guy, but the, the one fly in the ointment that I see is the fact that it's an election year and I have to imagine that markets are going to be volatile this year. That volatility may distract advisors, could potentially slow things down a bit as advisors might be forced on the phones all year calming their clients' nerves, won't be able to be out negotiating deals with other advisors throughout the year. But the fact remains everyone is very excited by the concept of inorganic growth and why not. I imagine a lot of RIA owners sat down at the end of last year and on the heels of a long bull market noticed that they are starting to run into the law of large numbers. I think they are realizing that they have grown and grown organically for several years. They're realizing that the rate of growth is beginning to slow just a bit. And after meeting with the other owners of the business, their, their business partners, they're deciding that 2020 is the year that they want to pursue an inorganic growth strategy. They've been reading headline after headline of all the acquisitions going on in the industry, and they're thinking, well, we should get in on that action. So I'm guessing we are going to have more and more first-time buyers looking at the M&A game this year. And with that framework, I wanted to selfishly promote the concept behind this podcast, 
which many of you know, is that PFI Advisors firmly believes that RIAs cannot meet their organic or inorganic growth goals without a competent COO in place. We have talked about this a lot with our guests and we'll continue to do so. We actually have two heavyweight RIA acquirers lined up for our next roundtable interview. I'm interviewing both COOs later this week for episode 15, and we'll talk to them about how important having the right infrastructure in place before looking to make an acquisition is. And we've written countless articles on our website around this concept, including two white papers titled, How to Become a Successful RIA Buyer. Actually, we've written three white papers around M&A if you include the marketing and branding one that we, that we co-authored with DeSola Group. Um, but we're going to continue to write more and more around this concept because we think it's such an important topic, especially given how frenzied the pace of transactions is becoming in our industry. And it doesn't seem there's any slowing down in sight. So I thought I would take a short break from our interview format and just riff on this idea for a bit if, if uh, the listeners will indulge me for a few minutes. And I'm sure the COOs and operations professionals listening are going to pump their fists in the air as I'm talking and say, damn right, you can't do this without us. <laughs> uh, so, so this should be fun. Christina Townsend from Pershing. I, I met her near the end of last year. I've become a big fan of hers. She is the head of platform strategy and consulting, and uh, her and I think a lot alike. She recently put out an article in Investment News. It was titled, RIAs, Shopping for M&A Deals? You better get your house in order first. And in her article, she says, similar to what I just did with the backdrop of these incredible M&A numbers, she says, it would be easy to conclude that M&A is a logical strategy for virtually any RIA, but firms need to take a hard look at their goals and the realities of the marketplace before making a major move. Later on, she says, are the partners thinking beyond the deal calculus to analyze the 50 other factors involved in a merger? She says, think about capacity, people, and technology before making a major move. As you all know, because M&A is so crazy hot right now, any industry conference you go to, uh, they have an M&A panel. And if you've gone to any of those panels, almost all of the successful buyers that are being interviewed on those panels, almost every one of them will say, if you aren't growing organically first, you won't be able to grow inorganically. And taken at face value, if you hear that headline, you just assume that the guy or girl on the panel is simply bragging about their sales team. You assume the statement is simply saying, ha, my advisors are better than your advisors. But if you unpack that statement and you really think of, of, of it in terms of what Christina is talking about with capacity, people, and technology, what they're really saying is if you don't have the infrastructure in place to support the growth of your RIA today, you are opening yourself up for a world of hurt if you attempt to go and add 150 or 200 client relationships overnight through an acquisition. Now, because I'm a comedy junkie and because I'm often politically, I'm often politically incorrect, I'm going to use an analogy from the movie Old School. If you remember the movie, they get stuck doing an athletic competition. Each member of the fraternity has to perform a different gymnastics event. And the one everyone remembers, Will Ferrell does the floor routine with the ribbons, and it's, it's hilarious. But there's a different scene. This young kid, he's very overweight, is tasked with doing the vault. He's supposed to run across the room, hit the springboard... He's supposed to vault off the horse, flip in the air, and stick the landing. And visually, it's very funny because you can tell right away that they're asking him to perform this extremely tricky move, and you can see very clearly that he is not the right size, nor, nor does he possess the athletic ability to pull this off. But then they take the joke even further. The kid looks over at Vince Vaughn and he says, I, I'm never going to be able to do this. It is physically impossible for me to pull this off. And Vince Vaughn says, no, no, you don't have anything to worry about. Abdul is down there to spot you. 
And then they cut to Abdul, who is a 70 pound scrawny little kid. He very sheepishly waves at the camera and it makes the audience crack up because this little kid cannot under any circumstances support this big kid barreling down the room at him. They are both gonna die if they attempt to do this. I think about that scene a lot. If you are struggling from a capacity, people and technology perspective, and you can't support your own business today, I understand why RIAs perform their annual review and they come to the conclusion that they aren't growing as fast as they'd like, so acquiring assets seems to be the right thing. But there are many, many Abduls out there in our industry who are standing at the end of the room trying to spot this gigantic tank that is barreling down at them, and they're gonna get absolutely run over if they attempt an acquisition. We have had several phone calls from 50 to 75 million AUM advisors. They call us up and they say, yeah, hi. I need to be at 500 million or more if I'm gonna have the scale to compete in this industry. Do you happen to have any $450 million RIAs in your back pocket that I could buy and tuck in under me? And that sounds very funny because it's just like the old school scene. It's this tiny guy trying to swallow a behemoth. But in contrast to that, there are plenty of two or even $3 billion RIAs out there that just like Christina said in her article, they don't have their houses in order and they're gonna to attempt to swallow a 250 or even a $500 million RIA. And on paper, just looking at the sizes of the organizations, you think, yeah, that's gonna work. The buyer is five to 10 times the size of the seller. That should be a match made in heaven. But then when you look under the hood, that $2 billion firm is 15 or 20 years old, has never upgraded its systems, has no documented job descriptions or organizational chart, is manually billing in Excel, has never turned on a client portal, it's running a 25 stock investment portfolio, has never incorporated a financial planning tool into its practice. There's no financial planning process uh, for the acquisition or the selling advisor to plug into. They're using Microsoft Outlook contacts as its CRM. And of course I put CRM in air quotes there. And they think number one, that they are capable of integrating four or five more advisors and their support staff, along with the 125 client relationships into their business without anything slipping through the cracks with either those new clients or even their existing ones. And two, which is probably even more ludicrous, they think that they're going to appeal to a smaller organization who has 40 other buyers whining and dining them and promising them the world should they join their organization. This $2 billion shop that is going about its business like it's 1998 thinks it's actually gonna win the right to partner with this RIA. We recently wrote an article for wealthmanagement.com titled, Post-Merger Integration, Yes is Nothing Without How. And we stole that phrase from a fantastic book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Chris Voss is a former FBI hostage negotiator. He was the guy that was on the phone with terrorists trying to negotiate the release of hostages all over the world. He did this job for 25 years. He now teaches negotiating techniques at USC's MBA school, as well as Georgetown's MBA program. He's also taught at Harvard and Northwestern. He's, he's incredible. He now has a consulting firm where he teaches negotiating tactics in the business setting. And his book is fantastic. In his book, he writes, your job as a negotiator isn't just to get to an agreement. It's getting to one that can be implemented and making sure that happens. Because if he negotiates an exit for a hostage, if he gets the buy-in from the terrorist, that says, hey, if we do this, you're gonna do that, and then we'll do this, and then the hostages get to go home, whatever, whatever it may be. If he gets buy-in for a certain plan, but then his team goes off and does something completely different, he loses trust with that terrorist and things can get ugly very quickly. So he focuses a lot on implementation. Obviously that's a life and death scenario, but later in the book, he moves away from hostage situations and starts talking about his business consulting and negotiation tactics for the business world. And he writes, you don't get your profits with the agreement, they come upon implementation. 
And so using his concept of yes is nothing without how as a backdrop for the article that we recently wrote, we say, imagine two different negotiating tactics. You're the buyer in both scenarios. And in this ultra competitive M&A environment where there's 40 buyers for every seller, imagine that you meet with a potential acquisition candidate, a potential merger candidate, and your presentation is something like, yeah, so it's gonna be our way or the highway. You're gonna shut down your systems and processes and immediately come on to ours. We're not exactly sure how we're gonna pull this off because this is gonna be our first acquisition. So let's try to figure this out together and really make something great together. How does that sound? Or in contrast, imagine your tactic is, We've reviewed all of your people and processes as well as ours. We believe that our firm can solve these pain points of yours. We feel that your firm can fill these holes in our current offering. Here is our documented onboarding plan of how we intend to implement our systems and workflows alongside yours, creating a repeatable, scalable, and profitable business for all of us. Now, if you actually have a plan that, of how this merger is going to be implemented, and you can show that plan during the negotiating phase, you have a chance of outshining all those other buyers that the seller is interviewing with. If it's just, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I'm really committed and I'm writing a big check, so you should totally trust me. I think if that's your strategy, you're going to lose. It is all about the implementation. We wrote another article a few months ago titled The Emotions of an M&A Transaction. And this article focused not on clients, but on the employees of both organizations that are about to go through this merger. So assume the owners of both firms have reached an agreement on deal terms thanks to the implementation plan laid out by the buyer. And now they want to make the announcement to the staff. So they're going to say, hey, we're merging with so-and-so. You can bet your bottom dollar that the first thing going through every employee's mind is what does this mean for my career? Am I going to fit into the new organization? Do they have someone on the other side that already is doing my job? Am I going to lose my responsibilities and my client relationships from a service standpoint? What's my title going to be at the new firm? What's my salary going to be? Are we still going to have casual Fridays where I get to wear jeans? Does the new firm pay for parking? Or even, I have a medically fragile child. Will the benefits plan at the new firm be as good as the one we have now? So in our article, we recommend that sooner rather than later, the buyer sits down with each employee one-on-one -on -one and shows them a side-by-side -side comparison of healthcare, benefits, and incentives in the new world versus where they're coming from. Additionally, if the buyer is able to show the employee how they will fit into the organizational chart, what responsibilities are expected of them, and how they will work within the new organization, it eases the employee's minds. It shows that this process has been vetted and their personal contributions to the new firm have been taken into consideration. If there is an unfortunate circumstance that a particular employee isn't going to fit into the new organization, both the buyer and seller need to be upfront and transparent with those individuals. If possible, offer them a transition period to stay on and help throughout the onboarding and ensure their responsibilities are properly transitioned to others. You're also asking these employees at both firms to learn new technology and new ways of executing their day-to-day -day tasks. And that can be very unnerving for folks who have settled in over the years and have great confidence in their abilities. So the fear of the unknown is very powerful. It's crucial that you set up proper training and give employees the tools needed to feel empowered and confident in the new world. If possible, bring your vendors on site for face-to-face -face training sessions. Show the employees how to use these new systems, what the new processes will be, and make them feel confident that there are resources set aside to help them be successful. Buyers need to impress upon the seller's employees, their future employees, that this consolidation of firms is going to benefit both the employees and the clients, 
and that their well-being has is, is been thought of and planned for. Now, let me take a moment to run through seven components of a successful M&A strategy that we identified in our white paper. Uh, but between both white papers that we've done, we interviewed nine large successful buyers and we came up with these seven areas and in our opinion, every aspiring buyer needs to have in place before they can attempt to engage prospective sellers. First, you need a clear value proposition and we've written about this one on our blog. I call this your advisor pitch versus your client pitch. Many first-time buyers say to themselves, I've been really successful as an advisor for many, many years. I'm really good at getting clients to trust me and articulate my value proposition of why they should work with our firm. I think now I'm going to go out and start speaking with advisors and show them how they too could benefit from joining our organization. But then that advisor grabs the same pitch book that they've successfully used with clients all these years, and then they don't understand why they aren't having more success in attracting advisors. And it's because they are selling advisors on those things that are important to clients, but not necessarily advisors. That selling advisor, they already think that, he's, that he or she has invented the greatest investment philosophy or the greatest financial planning process or that he or she is offering the best family office services. So the buyer isn't going to win over the seller with those things. The advisor pitch needs to focus on the infrastructure of the firm. It needs to talk about the scalability of the organization. Uh, it needs to talk about the fact that the combined entity can offer better technology, can get access to new and exciting investment opportunities that the seller wouldn't have access to if he or she stayed on their own. The advisor pitch needs to clearly articulate what the buyer stands for, what their vision is for the culture of the combined firm. The seller needs to walk away from that meeting, understanding exactly what they are plugging into, what their clients and employees will benefit from if they join that large, larger organization. The buyer must answer the question for the seller, why should I join your firm? Number two on our list is technology and operational expertise. Going back to Christina's article, you have to get your house in order from a capacity, people, and technology perspective. In my example earlier, if your RIA is 20 plus years old and you've never updated your tech, if you are still running on Advent Access, you're going to be hard-pressed to get sellers excited to come join your organization. If you don't have a client portal, you're going to be in trouble. If you are operating under the assumption that your part-time billing person who is doing everything in Excel is going to magically be able to handle 150 additional clients, which could equate to 700 or more account numbers, and they all have their own billing nuances and exceptions. If you think that they're going to be able to pull off billing in the new company, you are burying your head in the sand and living in a dream world. If you don't have a CRM system to speak of, if everyone is just managing with Microsoft Outlook, and there is no scalability to the organization built into your CRM system, if your marketing department doesn't have a centralized repository of client contact information from which they can run email campaigns, that smaller seller, as I said earlier, is being wined and dined by 40 other prospective buyers. You are never going to stand out. This seller is taking a risk by joining your organization. They need to feel that the client experience is going to be better when they join your firm. If they feel that they are taking a step backwards from a technology and operational perspective, you are never going to compete with the other experienced buyers that are out there. Number three on our list is the need for a multidisciplined leadership team. And this points directly to scale. You need to convince the seller that you have built a well-organized, scalable enterprise. And one way you do that is by showcasing multiple owners with specific management responsibilities. By saying, this is Bob, he leads our alternative investments team. Or this is Susie and she leads our financial planning department. Or Robin here is in charge of family office services. It provides leverage and expertise so the selling advisor knows that his or her clients will be better served. Not only do these departments, so to speak, allow a sophisticated advisor to offer more complex solutions to his or her clients, 
but by potentially handing over the servicing of these responsibilities to these respective department heads, it allows that advisor to get back to growing their business and not having to worry about the day-to-day servicing of clients. The fourth item on our list of seven key capabilities that all RIA buyers need to develop before engaging in an M&A activity is management capacity for deals. If your firm is hoping to stand out among 40 other successful buyers during the negotiating phase, it is critical that the management team of the buyer is able to follow through on the many logistical details, the legal issues, the financial implications, the due diligence items, and the client transition requirements of getting a deal to the finish line. And this speaks directly to Chris Voss's focus on implementation. You can't simply push for a yes. You need to be able to demonstrate the how to the seller. The buyer needs to spell out for the seller how management will know if items are off track in that implementation project plan, or how both firms will address things if you find out that you're off track. If the buyer's management team doesn't have the capacity, if they are more focused on their own clients and not focused on M&A, or conversely, if they are too focused on M&A, and this is just one of several deals that they're juggling at the time, the seller is going to uncover that fact during negotiations and will undoubtedly choose another buyer. Fifth on our list is not in my wheelhouse, but it doesn't mean it isn't critical to getting a deal to the finish line. And that is the buyer must have a clear and transparent compensation structure. The seller needs to easily understand any equity, any compensation, or any buyout schedules that are embedded in the deal. And just as important, they need to understand the expectations for their role and responsibilities in the new firm. Are they expected to stick around and service clients? Are they expected to continue to bring in more clients in the years ahead? And if so, what is that expectation? Are they anticipated to play any part in the investment committee or the management committee of the new combined firm? Chris Voss states in his book, a surprisingly high percentage of negotiations hinge on something outside of dollars and cents, often having to do more with self-esteem, status, or other non-financial needs. These items need to be clearly and easily communicated to the seller during negotiations. Number six on uh, our list is the one that many feel is the most important, and that is the buyer must have a strong, defined culture. For many deals, it simply comes down to personality fit. Having a culture that permeates the organization and can easily be felt by the seller who is evaluating his or her options can ensure there is a good fit for both organizations. The seller has to know what he or she is getting into and what they are joining. And the more clearly the buyer can articulate that, the more confidently the seller can determine if the two firms are going to merge well together. Firms tend to spend all of their pre-close efforts focused on the economics of the deal, but it always seems to come down to the ever-elusive cultural fit that will ultimately determine whether a deal is a success or not. And lastly, number seven on our list of key areas that aspiring buyers must have in place prior to sitting down at the negotiating table is something very near and dear to my heart, and that is transition support. As we have said over and over today, in order to reach the promised synergies from a transaction, it is critical that the majority of clients transition to the new firm and have a good experience in order to ensure retention. The buyer needs those clients to remain at the firm because they have just structured the entire deal based on revenue and profit assumptions post-close. And the seller obviously would never agree to a merger if they thought for a second that operational issues would cause any clients to leave. So as the buyer, having the ability to tell the seller, hey, we have a deal team dedicated to the success of your transaction. You will not be left to your own devices to get the clients to move over. It is critical. Laying out that onboarding plan, showing the seller the different milestones and the different responsible parties within your organization that will lead the transition of clients and employees is going to go very far in differentiating yourself against all the other buyers that are competing for this deal. And then the punchline to all of this, and, and the most relevant here to our COO Roundtable podcast is, who do you think is in charge of all these tasks? 
During early negotiations, who do you think is articulating to the seller the onboarding plan that the buyer has and convincing the seller that implementation of this merger is going to go smoothly? Who is actually analyzing the systems and workflows of both firms and choosing which pieces of each firm should carry forward into the new world? Who do you think is sitting down with each and every employee and assuring them of their position in the new firm, the role they will play, and the benefits package they're going to receive? Who do you think is doing all of this? It's the COO, of course. So, potential buyers out there, if you are contemplating a merger in 2020, you had better go give your COO a big hug and tell them how much you appreciate them. As Christina Townsend said in her article, you need to get your house in order before you can consider making a merger presentation to any potential sellers. You need to make sure your organization has the capacity, the people, and the technology in place to support growth, whether that's organic growth or inorganic growth. You need to make sure it's in place first. And in her article, she even says, if you get all of this in place and the merger falls through, you are still going to be relieved that you went through this process. And if you go through this process and you revamp your organization, maybe organic growth kicks in so much that you no longer even need to consider an acquisition. In preparing your firm for the acquisition, you actually get to a point that you no longer need it. How is that for irony? Hopefully this rant of mine today has shed some light on these concepts and the fact that you can't just wake up tomorrow and say, well, let's go start buying RIAs. You need to have a plan and you need to have a strategy. I hope the articles and white papers that we've written in the past and the ones that we're undoubtedly going to write in the future will act as a roadmap for many. And I hope that this podcast, with our continued interviews with top-notch COOs and the stories that they share with us of how they attack their day-to-day responsibilities, not only making their firms attractive to sellers, but also in their ability to prepare their organizations for growth from a capacity, people, and technology perspective, and how they go about onboarding advisors, their teams, their employees, and their clients when the firm makes an acquisition. I hope through these interviews we share ideas with other RIAs and other COOs so they can hopefully incorporate some of these strategies into their own businesses. I know this episode was a bit different from our norm, but I wanted to get some of these operational issues related to M&A off my chest. (laughs) Uh, I hope this has helped. Uh, I hope uh, you all tune in to episode 15 next month when we interview two top-notch COOs from two very large RAs that are running very successful acquisition strategies. As always, thank you for listening. If, if some of these articles that I've mentioned have piqued your interest, feel free to go to pfiadvisors.com, click on blog at the top of the page, and then on the right-hand side there uh, of our blog page, you can subscribe. You can receive email alerts whenever we post new articles. We've been publishing one new article or podcast every week. So thanks everyone, and we will talk to you soon.